turn it off. There is no reason to ever tune in to corporate controlled media. MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, shut it off and never look back. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Propaganda from Bitch Media, On the Media, The Inquiry, Ring of Fire, The Young Turks, and it's always a good time to re-watch the famous speech from Network. Diversify your media. Amid all the media post-mortem on this election, people have been analyzing what went wrong with the way news outlets covered the election and the way bigoted and untrue information got traction on social media. But some people have been shouting about those problems long before the election. Carlos Maza is one of those people. Hi, my name is Carlos Maza, and I'm a research fellow at Media Matters for America, which is a progressive media watchdog group based in Washington, D.C. Carlos is one of the first people I saw who directly called out the way mainstream news outlets were reporting on Donald Trump and the coded language around his behavior. Way back in May, Carlos put together a video about why we should call Donald Trump what he is, racist and bigoted, not just a, quote, controversial outsider. Donald Trump wants to reinvent himself as a serious candidate now that it's general election time, which is terrifying because he's running one of the most bigoted presidential campaigns in recent history. But youth networks have spent the past 10 months treating him like just an unfiltered, tough-talking conservative. And that's doing a lot of damage to the way we talk about bigotry in American politics. It's Donald Trump's tough talk and brash style that took him to the top of the GOP field. Since day one, Trump's campaign has been defined by racial and religious bigotry. There's the little stuff like retweeting white supremacists, pretending to not know who David Duke is, and saying the before he talks about minorities. I'm going to do great with the African-Americans. I think I'm going to do great with the Hispanics. Seriously, who does that? Then there's the bigger... Now that Carlos's worst fears have come true, I ask him to explain what's been most frustrating about the way reporters covered Donald Trump during this past year. Um, I think some of the most frustrating things about media coverage in America, and I think this is true more broadly, is this really weird, inexplicable in my mind, devotion to the idea that... There are two sides to every story, and we can't really know the truth. We just have to kind of present every side of an issue and hope that people can figure it out. You see that on basically every issue, whether it's climate change or social justice. Anytime there's an objective right, news outlets do their best to avoid saying something is objectively right. Carlos says that a good media diet is full of original reporting and fact-based reporting, and less of the stuff that most cable news channels traffic in, the pundit commentary. You should always avoid media that emphasizes commentary and reaction um, rather than original reporting and investigative journalism. And what that does is it lends itself to news that is overly sensationalized, um, relies heavily on partisan commentary that is often divorced from facts, um, and just is, in terms of like nutritional value, is not actually informative or interesting for a viewer to understand. It doesn't lend to a typical civilian being able to make sense of what's right and what's wrong and what's important and what's not important. That means supporting the media outlets that are doing meaningful real work, too, which means, you know, subscribing or donating to support good work. 
the flashy, sensational news networks have no trouble getting money to support their commentary from advertisers. You can watch CNN for 15 hours straight and get very little useful knowledge about what's happening in the world. Um, and it's just not worth your time after a while. It'll make you more prone to thinking that arguing is news um, when it's not just people arguing. Carlos makes a very important point. Figure out who is writing your news. Who is actually making the media you're consuming and what backgrounds are they bringing to the table? Check and be aware of if the newsroom that you're consuming from is diverse. And I know that newsroom diversity sounds like such a boring feel-good trope. The more diverse a newsroom is, the less chance there's going to be that a report you read has a has a just glaring blind spot um, or takes bullshit seriously or trust people that should not be trusted. Any newsroom that does not have diversity as a central priority and defining trait of what good journalism looks like is not worth your time and should be treated with a tremendous amount of suspicion because more likely than not, you're going to get news that is just grossly incomplete um, and leads you to conclusions that are not based on reality but are based in the natural biases of that newsroom. Writing on his blog, PressThink.org, New York University journalism professor Jay Rosen noted that after last weekend's spectacular display by Press Secretary Sean Spicer, the case for sending interns to the White House briefing room is stronger than ever. He said there are no good words to describe that event. We can't call it an announcement because no new policy was revealed. It was not a conference because Spicer didn't take a single question. To the untrained eye, it was merely a tantrum over the press's coverage of President Trump's inauguration. So what do we call this? Rosen says it's a coded, quote, relationship message delivery vehicle for Trump's staff, the press, and the public. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much, Brooke. So what message did Spicer's tirade send to Trump's staff? You're going to be expected to lie for your boss. And then to the press, the message that the press will be regarded as hate objects. Yeah. The press is a kind of a prop playing a part in a theatrical set piece in which the administration launches resentment bombs <laughs> and assembled journalists kind of behave to type in that they cry about it later on. <laughs> the message was, we can do this to you, and what are you going to do about it? And we'll get to what you suggest they do about it in a moment. First, let's talk about that third group of people. Spicer was messaging the viewer at home, which you divide into three distinct groups. First, for the Trump supporters, one of the messages was that you are going to get something you want which is we're going to put down the press corps, put them in their place. In a way, Brooke, this is fulfilling a campaign promise. But in exchange for that, you're going to have to take on our lies as your lies. People have to decide they're going to either support Trump no matter what he says, or they're going to deal with this really tricky thing of the guy that I supported actually says stuff that's not true. What do I do? That's painful. That's hard. That's to group one, the Trump supporters. Trump supporters. Then there was another message to Trump's dedicated opponents, many of whom turned out in the streets the day after the inauguration, which is simply, go nuts. We're going to continue with the spectacular lies, and there's going to be day after day of stuff for you to hate. The more extreme you get in your reaction and your rhetoric, the better for us. So do it. 
Yeah, because you'll just embolden our supporters even more. You'll drive them deeper into our arms. Yeah. Then you've got the group that fall into neither of the previous two camps. I call them the neither-nors. Right. They're not Trump's hardcore supporters, but they haven't decided that they're in opposition to him either. Maybe they're in wait-and-see mode. Maybe they voted, but they're a little bit doubtful. The neither-nors. For those people, the message is, everybody's shouting again. It's very hard to figure out what's going on. This spectacle is getting uglier. Trying to find out who's really right. The people who say there's no evidence of voter fraud, the people who say, are you kidding? It's obvious. It would take a lot of work to figure that out. So you should just go on and live your life. And for that group of people, the Trump world is raising what economists call search costs. What it takes you to get enough information to make a good decision. And sometimes we make bad decisions or we act irrationally, not because we're irrational creatures, but because the search costs are just so high that we can't figure out what's going on. But why doesn't the Trump camp, rather than generate this fog machine to further disorient and paralyze the neither-nors, try to attract them? Lots of the things that Trump wants to do aren't necessarily popular. So if you can surround them with fog and confusion and people don't pay attention as much, you can get a lot more done. Now, contributing to this fog of confusion and apathy is Kellyanne Conway. Mm. You've been ensnared in a controversy about her because of remarks you made to the podcast Recode. The Washington Free Beacon wrote, a journalism professor is calling for a boycott on White House advisor Kellyanne Conway because of her ability to deflect criticism of the administration. What really happened there, Jay? I was asked about Kellyanne Conway, how the press should handle her, and I said that I think the journalistic rationale for continuing to interview her had eroded in that I could see two reasons why you would continue to have her on. One is because she represents the views of Donald Trump. But frequently, what she says is contradicted by Donald Trump. Or she'll say, I don't know, you'll have to ask him. Well, if we have to ask him, why are we talking to you? Another reason might be to get clarity on how Trump world thinks. But I don't know about you, when I'm done listening to Kellyanne Conway, I feel I know less (laughs) about what Trump world thinks, in the sense that introducing confusion is a part of her method. It subtracts from the general store of information about Trump. Yes. So what I said was, if you're going to continue to interview Kellyanne Conway, the logic has to be somewhat different. One would be entertainment. It is entertaining to watch her fence with Chuck Todd. Another would be, we don't want to get criticism for being one-sided, so we ask Kellyanne Conway on so we can say the Trump world is represented. Avoiding criticism. But in that case... You have to cop to it. Yeah, you have to say it. That we are doing this for pure numerical balance. And we don't expect to get any real information. Right. Just level with us. Say, this is why we're doing this. We can't resist. I know the press is going to continue to interview her. Which brings us back to the White House press room and something you wrote in one of your posts. Send in the interns. Mm -hmm. You don't have to serve as a hate object. There's nowhere it is written that you must do that. However, it is written in most intern contracts. (laughs) (laughs) Right. If that's what we ask you to do, then that's what you will do. (laughs) 
There's another reason I love the idea of sending interns, and that's the optics of it. I mean, mm-hmm. the younger, the better. Yes. Have Spicer unload his right. big guns right. on 18-year-olds mm-hmm. and blame them for the collapse of civilization. Yeah, and maybe they would come up with a different way of fencing with Sean Spicer than the pros do, right? True. Maybe they would come up with almost like a Stephen Colbert-ish you know, misdirection play that would constitute their cultural theater being practiced upon the White House as opposed to the reverse. So that, that's I love that super ironic yeah, people whatever. in the newsroom. That would be the best. Let's get back to that up for grabs, the neither nors. The silver lining here is that these are people who are not already so subsumed in confirmation bias on either side that they can actually be open to information. Mm -hmm. I'm really struck by what you said in one of your posts when you directed us to make a distinction that sociologist C. Wright Mills wrote about in the 1950s between troubles and issues. Right. Troubles are the things that are actively bothering people in their immediate environment, the problems they can see in their daily lives that they discuss with family members. Issues are public disputes about what to do that are also affected by what the political system needs to mobilize people, create coalitions, avoid criticism. So if journalists just come into the picture after the issues are formulated by somebody else, and start reporting on how they get fought about, they're going to miss out on this earlier step where people's troubles get transformed into issues. It's not political reporting, really, to go out there. It's, as you say, it's troubles reporting. Yeah. So that you don't end up just reporting on someone else's definition of someone else's experience. And that's where I think reporting in 2016 fell down. And that's where I think journalists now have to go back and try the big listen and get a very good read on the troubles that led people to be so disgusted with the establishment and some of them to vote for Donald Trump. To go back and fashion out of that a kind of anchoring reporting agenda, they could begin to speak to that third middle group in a way that the Trump administration or Congress is not prepared to do. And then you want that to inform all the rest of the reporting, right? Yes. An example of this is uh, the Texas Tribune. Their bread and butter is policy reporting. You know, they're and in, data and data and they're in the Capitol a lot. They're based in Austin. After the election, they put out a job listing for a reporter whose job is specifically to listen to Texans. That's their whole job. To make sure that the issues talked about in the Texas Tribune don't disconnect from the troubles that Texans feel in their daily lives. So that's just one way of doing it, to try and go back to that wrong turn. When, for example, the pundits on the roundtables say, well, how do you think this is going to play with the white working class? That's viewing the white working class through the eyes of the consultants and handlers and pollsters, right? They're objects. They're like balls on the billiard table 
Will they break this way? Or will they break that way? That way of seeing people was corrosive. Jay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Jay Rosen teaches journalism at New York University and writes about the media on his blog, PressSync.org. The failing New York Times. Which isn't true. He's entitled to his opinion, but he's wrong on the facts of our economics. Dean Barquet is the executive editor of the New York Times, a well-respected broadsheet founded 165 years ago, which has won over 100 Pulitzer Prizes. And yet, it's routinely described by President Trump as... The failing New York Times, because it's failing, it's losing a fortune... How do you handle the president when you're facing such a barrage of criticism from the White House? You cover him aggressively. You cover him fairly. You cover him accurately. And if he beats you up in the court of Twitter, you don't respond unless he says something that's factually inaccurate. You just keep reporting away. That's the mission that's that simple. It was the middle of the night when journalists in the huge New York Times newsroom, most of them expecting an election victory for Hillary Clinton, realised Donald Trump had won. When a big story breaks, there's this moment where everybody falls forward and sort of rushes into the story. And I just remember thinking, got to get the right headline ready. What's the right headline for Donald Trump? Trump triumphs, he decided. A huge story. And yet somehow, in failing to anticipate Donald Trump's victory, one the New York Times had missed. I would probably put it more um, diplomatically than that. Here's what I think we missed. And I think the entire journalism establishment of the United States largely missed. I think we didn't have a handle on the anger in America. And I don't think we quite understood the appeal Donald Trump held for a lot of Americans. I think we sort of all missed this dramatic shift in the tone of the country. How, then, did they miss it? Part of it is that we're in a moment where the finest news organizations in the world largely are in big, liberal, I would say, American cities. Soon after the momentous election result, Dean Barquet had a message for his newsroom staff. This is a truly clarifying moment for us. The country is begging for us to do two things, to explain what happened, and to hold power to account. Immediately, the New York Times put more journalists on the political beat. Donald Trump is leading a revolution in the way government works. We've put more people in the Washington Bureau. Usually, you have two or three people covering the White House. We have six. But the surprise president had shown Dean Barkey that his newspaper was out of step with many Americans, people who had, against all predictions, chosen Donald Trump to be their leader. He could see the paper had a problem. And, he says, he can see the solution. We're just going to be out in the country as much as we can. The New York Times has the biggest national staff of any news organisation in the US and has reporters all over America. But now Dean Barquet is asking them to go deeper. 
encouraging them to get outside of Atlanta and to the places around Atlanta and then get outside of New Orleans and to the places around New Orleans. And he wants his reporters to go deeper into the issues people most care about. Religion, he knows from experience, is the big one. I grew up in the American South, in a very Catholic city, New Orleans. And the discussions are very different than they are in New York or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C. Figuring out ways to get in the middle of more of those discussions is going to be important to understanding the country, I think. It's to help our readers understand how people think who are not like them. And far from failing, the New York Times says it's been gaining tens of thousands of readers in recent months and that subscriptions are at an all-time high. Right now, three million people pay to read the New York Times in some form or another. Subscriptions are going up like crazy. The truth is, this is a great story and people are lining up to read us. Donald Trump, Dean Barkay says, is both making the New York Times more money and prompting it to do better journalism. It's given us clarity. I think it's given the country an understanding of the value of really good journalism. So you asked me in the very beginning how I felt election night. The part of me that has been in newsroom since I was 19 years old, that part of me said, oh my God, you are covering a gigantic story. Have fun with it. What if you could make the world a little bit better every time you used your cell phone? Well, it turns out you can thanks to Credo Mobile because whenever you use Credo products or services, you generate critical donations for progressive causes and vital activism work at no extra cost to you. They donate over $150,000 every month to nonprofits like the ACLU, Friends of the Earth, Social Security Works, and they've been Planned Parenthood's largest corporate donor for years now. Credo basically gives to a who's who list of some of my my favorite organizations that we promote here on the show all the time. Credo truly does give you the power to make a positive social change every day, not to mention they offer coverage on the nation's largest and most dependable 4G LTE network, and you can easily transfer over with your existing number. So if you want a better world for us all and a better way to stay connected to it, you want Credo Mobile. So if you're ready to switch, go to credomobile.com slash best of left, and you will get $100 off your new smartphone phone plus $15 off your monthly line fee for two years. That's C-R-E-D-O mobile.com slash best of the left. Or you can call them directly at 800-654-3182 and mention best of the left to get the deal. In an interview with Amy Goodman from Democracy Now!, just a few weeks after the presidential election, Senator Bernie Sanders told Goodman that one of the biggest threats to American democracy is the corporate-controlled media. And in terms of things that uh, Bernie Sanders has said this year, most of them, almost all of them have been absolutely true, but this one could not be more true. This is one of the most profound statements I believe that Senator Bernie Sanders has made this entire year. And that's on top of a year of just phenomenal statements from Bernie Sanders. 
Because think about this, the corporate controlled media does not tell us the truth anymore. They tell us parts of the truth. They tell us bits and pieces here and there, but we know, and we know from experience here that they do censor what they're able to tell you. They have to run it through their advertisers. Sometimes they have to run it through boards of directors who also happen to sit on the boards of major pharmaceutical companies, of energy companies, of health insurance companies. Do you see where I'm going with this? The corporate media is a threat to democracy because they no longer do what they are designed to do. And that is to educate the public about the issues. They don't do that anymore. And Bernie Sanders understands that. And it's not necessarily the fact that they don't do it. It's the fact that they can't do it because of their corporate sponsors, their corporate masters. They can't tell us the truth anymore. And when you have a, a, a media that wants to sensationalize everything, not only does it harm the public intellect, but it makes us rush into rash decisions. Think about the Iraq war. The New York Times, MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, everybody talking about the fact that Saddam Hussein unquestionably, undeniably was stockpiling yellow cake, uranium, aluminum tubes, weapons of mass destruction, biological weapons. My God, this man was about to launch a war against the entire planet and he was going to win if we didn't take him out right now. The media helped push that story and it weakened American democracy. It weakened our national and international standing with the rest of the world. And they're still doing those things. We saw it with Iran a couple years ago. We saw it with Libya. The media cannot be trusted to protect the American public anymore. They're not telling us about dangerous pharmaceuticals out there that will kill you if you take them as directed. They're not telling us about health insurance company jacking up prices just for the sake of jacking up prices and getting more money. They're not telling us those stories. And yes, that is a huge threat to democracy as Bernie Sanders has pointed out. And I'll say now what I've said a hundred times in the past, turn it off. There is no reason, and I don't care if you like a couple of the hosts or whatever, there is no reason to ever tune in to corporate controlled media. MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, shut it off and never look back. A couple of weeks ago, watching the political media chase their tails, we asked linguist George Lakoff for guidance on how to report on the erroneous emissions, whether by Twitter or mouth, of Donald J. Trump. In his first week in office, the nation's capital shook under a fusillade of flim-flam. So we tried out Lakoff's prescriptions on one recent presidential tweet. Lakoff says you cover his tweets by first not covering his tweet. You begin by telling the truth and giving the evidence for that truth. So here's the truth. 
This past November, the United States held a free and fair election in which Donald Trump lost the popular vote by nearly 2.9 million votes, but won the Electoral College by 74 votes, thereby winning the presidency. Then mention his tweet, point out that that contradicts the truth. Wednesday's tweet. I will be asking for a major investigation into voter fraud, including those registered to vote in two states, those who are illegal, and even those registered to vote who are dead, and many for a long time. Depending on results, we will strengthen up voting procedures. The truth is that voter fraud is virtually non-existent. In one study, law professor Justin Levitt found 31 credible incidents out of one billion ballots cast. Even members of the GOP agree, including House Speaker Paul Ryan. I've seen no evidence to that effect, and I've made that very, very clear. And Trump's own campaign has argued that, quote, all available evidence suggests that the 2016 general election was not tainted by fraud or mistake. So, George, what do we do now? Talk about what kind of tweet this is. You have to understand what the framing is, and what the framing is he's trying to avoid. Trump's Twitter call to investigate millions of allegedly fraudulent votes is what Lakoff calls a tweet of preemptive framing. The idea of preemptive framing is to frame an issue before other people get a chance to, to put the idea out there first. If Trump reframes his loss of the popular vote as tainted, he induces us to discuss it through that lens. It's also a tweet of diversion, bending the media's focus to the investigation and away from that irksome popular vote, which Trump views as a challenge to his mandate. And this tweet also fits a third category in Lakoff's tweet taxonomy, the trial balloon. He's going to see how people react to this, and then he'll know what to do in the future. Does he have popular support for a wholesale investigation into voter fraud? Run it up the flagpole and see who salutes. So what should we do when Trump issues a tweet to divert us from real issues? Keep going back to substance and the truth. Obviously, there are many, many, many substantial things that happened this week. President Trump kicked off his term with a flurry of executive action. President Trump has signed an executive order pulling the U.S. out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal. The president re-implemented an order banning American tax money from funding abortions in other countries. It's known as the Mexico City policy. President Trump also signed a series of new executive orders earlier today, including a pair to advance the Keystone XL and Dakota Access oil pipelines. To name just a few. He's also lost the entire senior administrative team of the State Department, signed an order that could weaken the Affordable Care Act, met with UK Prime Minister Theresa May, and kept James Comey on as head of the FBI. Oh boy, not done yet. President Trump has signed an order to build a wall on the U.S. border with Mexico, one of his main campaign promises. The order also curtails federal funding for sanctuary cities, hires 5,000 more Border Patrol agents, and ends the Obama-era practice of catch and release. And then there was this. Yesterday, the Trump administration instituted a media blackout at the EPA. It banned agency employees from giving social media updates or speaking with reporters. And it barred staff from awarding any new contracts or grants. The EPA media blackout came on the heels of another disquieting move, 
calling for the National Park Service to silence its Twitter accounts. Most parks fell into line, but not all. Badlands National Park was bad to the bone in defiance of Trump. The South Dakota Park's Twitter account fired off a tweet storm of climate science data. It was retweeted tens of thousands of times before being deleted. It seems other Park Service staffers defied the administration's orders by spontaneously producing alternative, unregulated social media accounts. The first was a Twitter account called Alt-U.S. Nat Park Service. It was allegedly run by Park Service employees and quickly started sending out climate change facts and taunting the new president, saying you can take our official Twitter, but you'll never take our free time. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. Newsmax president and CEO Christopher Ruddy was recently on television, and he made an interesting case. Um, now, we've got his face here and says uh, biased news, uh, but I'm not referring to him. Even though he's conservative, I actually think, uh, I as a progressive think that he makes an interesting case. They're going to be talking about fake news, and he brings up the issue of biased news. So let's watch. Hmm. We talked about fake news earlier on your show, or folks have, and that's been the talk of all the news media what about bias news i think that had a much bigger impact in this election and there's a general feeling jeffrey tubin said earlier people feel the media responsible you guys had a responsibility to give fair and balanced news and i think anybody that looked at this objectively they were talking about issues the american public didn't call so that's very interesting and i think i generally agree with them so the, the question is, what was more damaging, fake news or biased news? Now, this is where I will lose a lot of Democratic Party establishment. And I, and I, I know that generally, and I know it specifically because of the quotes that I'm going to give you. Um, having them posted a big story, and they lean progressive about, oh, this issue of you know uh, blaming the media is outrageous. Uh, just bow your head and, and accept what the corporate media gives you. The corporate media couldn't possibly be biased. So I'm in a unique situation here because some of the conservatives say, oh, the fake news is not a real issue. Uh, Democratic Party establishment thinks fake news was the determinative issue. And if it wasn't for that, we would have won if it wasn't for you rascally kids. And don't blame Hillary Clinton. Don't blame the Democratic Party establishment. It was all the fake news. No, I think fake news was a real issue. 
I, I saw it on Facebook, and it was in droves. And obviously, it had a purpose, and it was to deceive people. And I think that it did have an effect. But I don't think it was determinative. I don't think that it absolves the Democratic Party of the issues that they cost them this election. I also agree with Ruddy that it was not the biggest factor in news. So now let me give you the so-called liberal position, and then I will argue against it. So Thomas Mann, who was from the Brookings Institution, which is a left-leaning think tank, says, a lot more goes into policy making and decisions than money, and the idea that it's all bought and sold is really quite destructive. Now he's saying that in the context of the media because he's saying uh, all these uh, guys on the right who were talking about draining the swamp, and all the people on the left like Bernie Sanders who were saying that the uh, the politicians are bought and the corporate media is part of that same establishment are wrong because oh, it's really overbought, overstated. Come on, do the politicians really listen to their donors? Yes, Thomas Mann. They most absolutely do, and I've got evidence to show you in a second that is, I think, very much determinative on that issue. And then he goes on to say, there's too much reporting that reinforces the public view that it's all corrupt. What do you mean there's too much reporting? There is almost no reporting in the mainstream media about how it's corrupt. They will carry a speech by Trump when he says drain the swamp. They will sometimes carry speech of Bernie Sanders or when he's in a debate, they will allow him to make the point. Uh, they won't cut his mic as he says that there's corruption. But when's the last time you saw the corporate media talking about politician X gets money from these donors and then he does exactly what his donors tell him to do? Here, I can show it to you in the legislation. Now, they could do dozens. In fact, they could do hundreds of those stories. But do they? They almost never do those stories. So Thomas Mann, I don't know what the hell you're talking about when you say that the media covers that too much. No, the problem is they don't cover it nearly enough because remember, they are the benefactors of that corruption. Most of the money that is raised from donors goes into TV ads, billions of dollars in TV ads. They're not against that corruption. That corruption is their business model. So more from man, more that is wrong from the left side. To Brookings man, that could be the Sanders campaign's lasting legacy, uh, Huffington Post explains, convincing an entire cohort of first-time Democratic-leaning voters that the system is beyond repair. And here's a quote directly from man. He says, that was uh, his, referring to Bernie Sanders, that was Sanders' major contribution to this election, unfortunately. I thought Bernie was very harmful. <laughs> So if you had all just bowed your heads and accepted the establishment as it is and not challenged it from the left, we could have just tricked the American people for longer that there was no corruption, that the donors don't make any difference at all. Okay, um, it, Donna Brazil unsurprisingly agrees. She said the emails were, the leaked emails from Podesta were, quote, weaponized to sow misinformation and to sow discord between the Clinton and Sanders camps. Now, look. Those emails, yes, they did not help Hillary Clinton's cause. But that's because they revealed the truth about what she was actually thinking and what her campaign was actually do doing. The Clinton-Sanders camp were divided based on policy, based on real differences. It wasn't like, oh my God, the Russians hacked something and created a divide. No, that divide already existed because the Sanders camp, real progressives say there is corruption. It's obvious, right? 
And the Clinton camp goes, no, I don't see any evil. I don't hear any evil. There's no corruption. The establishment is awesome. Vote for the establishment. How did that strategy work out for you guys? It worked out miserably because the American people don't agree with you. And by the way, very importantly, they are right. So now let me show you the evidence on that. So this is the chart of productivity versus hourly compensation through the decades of America. So you see in that chart from 1948 to 1973, and I would make the case um, that that change happened a little bit later. But it's you know some people call it 78, some people call it 80, and here in this chart they say 1973. Okay, and you can see with your own eyes where it begins to diverge. But from 48 to 73, inarguably, as American productivity went up, hourly compensation went up, which is great. So you, are the American worker, you were productive and you got compensated for it. But from then on, that chart diverges significantly. Great job, American workers. Your productivity was through the roof. It was up 74.4% from 1973 to 2013. And, uh, and overall, up 243%. God, you're incredibly productive. But your compensation did not match. Between 1973 and 2013, your hourly compensation went up only 9.2%. You did not get the reward of your work. You see the difference between those two lines? You know what that equals? Trillions of dollars. Not millions, not billions, trillions of dollars. Now, so what happened there? What happened was the system got rigged in favor of the rich and the powerful. And they did it through changing the tax code. They did it through keeping the minimum wage down. They did it through deregulation. And how were they able to get those laws passed? Why weren't they able to get them passed between 1948 and 1973? And why were they able to get them passed after the 1970s? I'm glad you asked. Well, back then we had the New Deal in place. And it did not allow for direct campaign donations from multinational corporations or from wealthy individuals directly into financing elections. That was illegal. You couldn't do it. So it was really hard to buy your representatives. That's not to say that it never happened. Of course, there's been corruption throughout American history, but it was harder. And if you got caught, you went to jail. And you can see from that chart that it was so hard that they couldn't rig the rules to take all the money away from you back then. You see the proof is in the pudding. It's in the results. But then when they changed the rules in the Supreme Court in 1976 said money's speech. In 1978, they said, oh, corporations are human beings, and so they have a First Amendment right to pay off politicians. They legalized bribery. And when they did, you know what the result was? All of a sudden, your representatives no longer represented you, they represented the donors. So let me show you the result of that. So this is a Princeton and Northwestern study, and they showed over a great number of years, this is over 1,800 policy positions in, a, in, in about a 40-year time period. And the chart on the left shows you the results of public opinion. Did public opinion have any effect on public policy? Now, in a democracy, it should have a direct effect. The people think this, they get laws that say the same thing. But on the left, you see it's a flat line. So your opinion, even though we're supposed to live in a democracy, had no effect on public policy on the laws that were passed, none. On the right-hand side, you see economic elite and donor opinion. That has almost 
a direct correlation to the laws that were passed. That's how they rigged the system. It's not a conspiracy that's hidden anywhere. It's right out in the open. They said, oh, I got a great idea. Let us just bribe them legally. The Supreme Court stacked by right-wingers, and Nixon is the one who stacked it. Lewis Powell wrote a memo saying, hey, why doesn't the Chamber of Commerce just capture the Supreme Court? It'll make all the difference. Richard Nixon reads the memo, and that was written in the early 1970s. goes, hey, Lewis Powell, that's a genius idea. Guess what? I'm going to put you on the Supreme Court. Not I'm going to take your idea and put it put someone else in. He's like, that's such a good idea. I'm going to let you capture the Supreme Court. Lewis Powell goes on the Supreme Court. What does he decide? He's the deciding vote in that decision, Buckley v. Vallejo in 76 that I told you about, deciding vote in Bellotti, the 1978 decision. The business interests capture our Supreme Court, and then they're able to legally give money to politicians, and all of a sudden the politicians don't represent you anymore. So I showed you the results of that. Trillions of dollars of value extracted from your work goes into their pockets. But on top of that, let me show you how they fixed the tax code. Back in 1952, when we have an honest system, corporations are paying 32.1% of all taxes. The social insurance and retirement is only 9.7%. That's the payroll tax that you pay. Everybody pays it, and, uh, and it's a regressive tax. It actually, once you get beyond a certain income level, the rich don't have to pay it anymore. They pay it in the beginning like you do, but on top of their extra income, they never have to pay it. It's actually the least fair tax that we have. Now, look at 2015. All of a sudden, corporations are not paying 32%. They're only paying 10.8% of the taxes. Look at that magic. All of a sudden, their tax burden is much, much smaller. And by the way, that is not corporate America. That is multinational corporations. Their executives are multinational. Their shareholders are multinational. They have no interest in America. They're not patriotic. They are robots and machines built to maximize profit. Those are multinational corporations that rig the rules in our country to their favor. And look at who winds up paying the price. That social insurance and retirement went from 9.7 to 33.5% of all the taxes being paid. The most regressive tax we have, the one that charges the biggest percentage of income to the poor and the middle class, especially the middle class, well, that's where the tax burden got shifted. And then the last trick of this is that as you are mad that taxes are too high, you're right, because they shifted tax burden onto you. Then the Republicans turn around and go, you see that? That's why we should lower taxes on corporations. <laughs> you see how they switched it on you? You're not wrong to be mad about taxes because you're carrying the bigger load. But lowering corporate taxes doesn't help that equation. It hurts that equation. So all of this is in service of the establishment. That is, yes, the corrupted politicians. That's true. So Democratic Party you could argue that the Republican Party is slightly more corrupt than you because they're better at serving the rich and multinational corporations, and that's fair. But it's only slightly better than you. Are you guilty of this as well? Hell, yes, you are. That's why the people just didn't vote for you, because Hillary Clinton was the embodiment of the establishment. 17% of Donald Trump voters said they thought he was unqualified for office. 
Isn't that amazing? Unqualified for office, but I voted for him anyway. Why? Because I can't stand the establishment. That's who Hillary Clinton is, and I'm not going to vote for them. Okay? Now, uh, on top of that, the establishment is also the corruptors. So Republicans, wake up. How do you think the politicians got corrupted in the first place? From their donors. So multinational corporations and all of the other interests, whether it's rich people, including Sheldon Adelson and the Koch brothers who are, and the Mercers who are on the right, or George Soros, Mike Bloomberg, whoever else is on the left, corporations and unions. We've got to stop them from buying our politicians. So they are the establishment. And part of that establishment is, yes, the media. Because the media is also run by multinational corporations that are worth billions of dollars, that profit to the tune of billions of dollars from the ads that go into that corrupt system. We've got, and, and so when you say from the Brookings Institute, from the left or from the right, oh, everything's fine. I don't know what people are talking about being the system being rigged. That's what we're talking about. The system is rigged, and there it is in clear evidence as to how it got rigged and what the results of that rigging was. Look, you asked me, I want you to fight back against that system in any way you can. I don't care if you fight from the right, you fight from the left, you fight from the middle, okay? Now, and, and however you think is the proper way to fight it. I think the proper way to fight it is to get an amendment so that we don't rely on private financing. If private financing, you know what it leads to? People working for the private financiers. So if you somebody signs your checks, I got news for you, and all Americans outside of Washington and New York already know this, you work for the guy who signs your checks. So if he tells you to do something, you're going to do it, otherwise you don't get the checks, and then you can't win the election. So you've got to get that money out. I believe you need public financing. If we sign their checks, they work for us. So now you have different ideas for election reform, God bless your heart. Let's go do a convention, an Article 5 convention, to get us amendments to do election reform. Because one thing the entire country, over 90% of the country agrees on is we need election reform. This system is fixed, it's, and it's not fixed to help the average American. So go to wolf-pack.com slash revolution. Go there, help them get more members, help them rise up. You know they, that Wolfpack already has 35,000 volunteers on the ground across the country? They've already passed legislation in five states. If you get 34 states to call for a convention, and the establishment will hate it. They'll say, no, that's too much change. Don't change it. Don't change it. Yeah, of course you don't want it to change because you're profiting off of it. But for the rest of us, we need that change. We desperately need that change. Wolf-pack.com. If you want to be a volunteer, great. Be part of the solution. Be part of bringing our democracy back. If you want to donate so that we can hire more people to get this done, great. But we need amendments to fix the system. We got to go above the Supreme Court. So they capture the Supreme Court. Well, the only thing above the Supreme Court is the United States Constitution. And our founding fathers said that we must amend the Constitution. That they were revolutionaries and they built revolution into the document. The revolution is an amendment. Wolf-pack.com. Fight in any way you can. If you think Wolfpack's not the right answer, fight in that way. If you think public financing is not the right answer, that's okay. Join Wolfpack anyway, because we're going to do election reform, and we're going to discuss all the different ideas on how to reform our elections. But come and do something. Stand up. Don't listen to the liberals. Don't listen to the conservatives who tell you to bow your head and that there's nothing wrong with the system. You know in your heart there's something wrong with the system, and I just showed you exactly what it is. So stand up.
and come and fight back with us. Wolf-Pack.com. You who have robbed us, you who have lied, you who are greedy while the needy ones died, you who believed you were better than them, who sat in the flower ignoring the stem, you who denied them doctors and care, humanity's basics as if death were their share, you who denied the struggles of most, like a pig you consumed and like a pig you will roast as we say. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, become a media activist. As Trump continues his assault on the press, some have suggested that there might be a silver lining. Maybe the mainstream corporate media will work harder, do real reporting, and as a result, become a better resource for citizens. Maybe. It's still too early to tell, and the corporate overlord influence may be too strong for real change to happen, but no matter how things turn out, we must always be active news consumers. That means calling out inaccuracies and bias when you see it, and communicating directly with journalists to demand more responsible reporting. In the age of Trump, this has never been more important. So we'd like to bring your attention to the nonprofit organization FAIR, which stands for Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. FAIR is the progressive organization behind the show Counterspin, one of my favorite sources for Best of the Left, this National Media Watch group has been offering well-documented criticism of the media for more than 30 years. FAIR's mission includes fighting for greater diversity in the press, pushing for minority and dissenting viewpoints, scrutinizing media practices that marginalize public interest, exposing neglected news stories, and defending working journalists when they're muzzled. They also believe that structural reform is ultimately needed to break up the dominant media conglomerates, establish independent public Public broadcasting and promote strong nonprofit sources of information. Basically, they're total badasses. Now, here's where you come in. FAIR encourages the public to contact media with their concerns and become what they call media activists rather than passive consumers, and they provide the resources to do just that. Go to FAIR.org and check out their Take Action page, where they have a continuously updated list of action alerts about issues in the media and direct contact information you need to share your concerns with the outlet or journalist involved. You can also sign up to receive these action alerts via email so you can always be in the know. FAIR also provides a media activism kit that provides how-to guides for identifying, documenting, and challenging unfair or inaccurate news coverage, along with information about something that is certainly close to my heart, how to promote independent media. There's a link to the kit in the Take Action page of the site. Again, we want to ask you to help us in our work to amplify the most effective activism if you've come across an action or organization that's doing great work getting people engaged to resist the Trump agenda. Please share it with us by emailing Amanda at bestoftheleft.com. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if having an accurate, fair, and free press is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about becoming a media activist via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. The press is critical to our democracy, but we must hold them to extraordinarily high expectations. Otherwise, as Orwell once said, it's all just public relations. Activism. Activism. 
drawn out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, Mr. Beale, and I won't have it! Is that clear? You think you merely stopped a business deal. That is not the case. The Arabs have taken billions of dollars out of this country, and now they must put it back. It is ebb and flow, tidal gravity. It is ecological balance. You are an old man who thinks in terms of nations and peoples. There are no nations. There are no peoples. There are no Russians. There are no Arabs. There are no third worlds. There is no West. There is only one holistic system of systems. One vast and imane, interwoven, interacting, multivariate, multinational dominion of dollars. Petrodollars, electrodollars, multidollars, Reichmarks, rins, rubles, pounds, and shekels. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? You get up on your little 21-inch screen and howl about America and democracy. There is no America. There is no democracy. There is only IBM and ITT and AT&T and DuPont, Dow, Union Carbide and Exxon. Those are the nations of the world today. What do you think the Russians talk about in their councils of state? Karl Marx? They get out their linear programming charts, statistical decision theories, minimax solutions, and compute the price cost probabilities of their transactions and investments, just like we do. We no longer live in a world of nations and ideologies, Mr. Beale. The world is a college of corporations, inexorably determined by the immutable bylaws of business. The world is a business, Mr. Beale. It has been since man crawled out of the slime. And our children will live, Mr. Beale, to see that perfect world in which there's no war or famine, oppression or brutality. One vast 
and ecumenical holding company for whom all men will work to serve a common profit in which all men will hold a share of stock. All necessities provided, all anxieties tranquilized, all boredom amused. And I have chosen you, Mr. Beale, to preach this evangel. Why me? Because you're on television, dummy. Sixty million people watch you every night of the week, Monday through Friday. I have seen the face of God. You just might be right, Mr. Beale. We just heard clips today from Propaganda from Bitch Media advising you to diversify your news sources. On the Media spoke with Jay Rosen about his suggestion to send interns to the White House press briefing. The Inquiry asked the question, is Donald Trump good for journalism? Ring of Fire made the case to stay away from corporate-controlled media altogether. On the Media explained how to interpret and report on Trump and his tweets. The Young Turks explained the deeper damage corporately biased news is capable of inflicting on our society. Our activism for today is to alert you to all of the great media criticism and activism resources available from fairness and accuracy in reporting, the producers of Counterspin, one of my personal favorite sources, and we just heard the famous speech from the movie Network. If you have not yet seen the classic 1970s film that explains everything you need to know about the media, go watch it now. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now we'll hear from you. Hi, it's Ryan from Phoenix. Just got done listening to the podcast about the latest catastrophe updates from the Trump travesty. And so you ended the, uh, the voicemail period, Jay, with, a, with an interesting tip to start off the conversations with right questions, wrong answers, conversation with both liberals and conservatives. Uh, and I wanted to say that that's a, that's a very good way to start something that's even more generic of advice that I will just kind of explain in, I think, a, a broader sense. So one of the things, uh, or the themes out of the recent political dialogue is the ever-crashing trust factor in, in political dialogue. We don't trust one another from different sides of the aisle, for the most part, and or we don't really have a whole lot of trust in political leadership at all. We are probably at an all-time low in trust and confidence in our political leadership, and so unfortunately that starts this huge uh, trust er erosion uh, and never allows us to escalate the conversation into deeper realms uh, that that trust is built upon. Because trust is such a foundational, uh, fundamental part of relationships between people or people and and even distant relationships, like between individuals and their leaders, that without trust, you never be able to move up the chain of greater and greater uh, points of interest, like having conversations of whether or not somebody's capable or has the capacity to be a good leader. If you're not, if 
you don't trust them, there's no reason to have that conversation. Or it could even work against you because with trust and then you build on capability, that's, that's an asset. But without trust and if they have capabilities, that's actually a threat. So in a lot of ways, trust is a great fundamental uh, component to, to build relationships from and, and the rebuild the political system and rebuild uh, our expectations for our leaders is to consider ways to rebuild trust. And so your question, getting back to your question, is one of these fundamental ways to build trust because what it does is it starts off with something, a commonality, something that you see that you share in the other person. And so this is how trust is reestablished, is that first off, you have to find some commonality between you and this person that holds opposing views from you so that you have a, a building place to start building from that point of trust. Okay, this isn't a, a level of an agreement. You must be a trustworthy person because we see eye to eye on some level and then building from that commonality until ultimately you can layer on deeper and deeper analyses to form a, a deeper and deeper relationship. And with a, with a deep relationship, you have more resilient relationships with somebody else. And the same thing can happen with our society too. So if we start rebuilding trust and layer and layer upon deeper uh, understanding of where we're at in society, we become a more resilient society, more resilient country. And ultimately that is a very profound goal in my estimation because right now I feel like our country is so on the verge of being not resilient and that, that, that dystopia that we face is so critical that you know it's got the novels like 1984 selling like hotcakes and so it, that's the scary times so I, I just I agree with your, your great question to start building from that commonality point and there's other questions or other building points uh, like that 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 I would encourage the listeners and, and people having conversations to start from and that's that fundamental rule of starting from that commonality to rebuild trust. And uh, let's make sure that 2020, we're asking questions that help us rebuild trust in our political leaders. I hope to God we can do something to get us out of the ever dividing gap between left and right and start rebuilding on something of commonality. Uh, thanks for everything you do, Jay. And I hope that this was a succinct enough point and uh, helps people out. Thanks. Hi, Jay. My name is Ken, and I'm calling in from Raleigh, North Carolina. I've been listening to the show for almost two years, and I've been meaning to call for a while in my voice to the conversation. And hearing your call for more voicemails made me think now would be the perfect time to speak up. Uh, I used to be a conservative. When I started my political life, I was 18, and W was up for re-election. Both of my parents leaned conservative because they both served in the military in the 80s. It was not what I'd call a Christian home, but there was plenty of time in church, and I thought it was going to be a pastor. I wanted to do a stint in the military like my parents, but I disagreed with the Iraq War. It had nothing to do with 9-11. But I wasn't really a voting Republican because it was a thing you do when you come from that background, and I was worried. I was worried that pulling out of Iraq would leave a vacuum. I worried that too many social changes might destabilize our society, and I worried about the moral integrity of America. 
But when I looked at the conservatives in power, I realized that they weren't exactly worried about the same things, and easily continued voting Republican up through 08. And after I took stock of my situation and realized the reason I was uneasy voting Republican was because I wasn't very conservative at all. My father is still conservative, though. But over the past year, he has stopped calling himself a Republican. Over dinner with him last week, we discussed the travel ban, and he disagreed with it largely as well. But as the conversation progressed, I could see him digging in his heels a bit. He said there was too much happening too quickly, and that too many people were asking for too many rights without bothering to think of the consequences. And then he said, but no one talks about us anymore, and he meant straight white guys. It's fair to point out that my dad is college-educated and upper-middle class, so not your typical blue-collar, down-on-his-luck, poor Trump voter. But the sentiment's still true. A few months ago, you played a clip from This Week in Blackness where they argued that every progressive ought to cast their vote for Hillary to stop Donald Trump. But they literally said, if you're a cis white male and you don't vote for Hillary, fuck you. I was upset that Bernie hadn't gotten a fair shake and was considering what to do with my vote. I agreed with them that the threat of Trump outweighed my disappointment in Hillary, and I was leaning that way. But I was offended by their words. And I considered voting third party or writing in Bernie or just not voting for president at all. I have been rationalizing my way through the disappointment right up until I heard that. And hearing that made me so angry, I considered throwing out my rational beliefs and defiance. And before anyone thinks triggered snowflake, I'd like to point out that getting angry and shutting down is a very common reaction to those words. After I cooled off a bit, I wondered, why would they do that? Don't they know they need me and people like me? Hillary was a bad choice for me, hands down, but she was my only choice. And it didn't help to be insulted and shamed along the way. I'm sure I'm not the only one who felt that way. Your show from a little while ago about how to talk to conservatives got me thinking about this as well. You see, I remember talking to some of the more hard-nosed conservatives in my life and hearing them try to rationalize voting for Trump. Most liberals seem to think conservatism is just a racist, corporate, evil ideology. And that's just not true. That's just the way conservative politicians have behaved for the past few decades. And I think a lot of liberals seem to be forgetting that conservatives got dealt a bad hand, too. Just like Hillary was my only choice if I wanted anything progressive to happen, Trump was your only real choice if you believe in conservative values. I saw many of the conservatives in my life, none of them bad people, struggle with voting for a candidate that they knew that didn't hold their values. And since the election, I've seen many of them dig in their heels. The liberals have called them racists, fascists, and bigots. Shaming and insulting people is not the way to win them over. It makes them further entrenched. You need to make persuasive ideological arguments. Because the fact is, we can't win without some of these people. The only way to win is to convince people from all walks that progress is a good thing. That's my two cents. Anyway, thanks for the show, Jay. Uh, I've learned a lot from it for the almost past, past almost two years. And... I look forward to much more. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, I have some thoughts about uh, Ken's voicemail that we just heard. He started an interesting conversation. I'm going to take it a little bit further. Uh, The last few episodes, we've been talking about how we talk to each other, whether it be across the aisle or now Ken saying, you know, he he only used to be a conservative, but he's listening to a liberal show that said something that rubbed him the wrong way as well. So let's uh, expand on that a bit. Now, he he was describing his uh, sort of offended response to hearing This Week in Blackness talk about who they thought straight white guys should vote for in the election. And I want to take a step back, get like the 10,000 foot view of that. So in the world of social justice, racial justice, gender equality, any any of those uh, types of conversations, you will inevitably come across a conversation about fragility. Uh, this is often in the form of white fragility or male fragility. And it's a totally legitimate conversation, and it's mostly just frustration. <laughs> when you hear these conversations, it's mostly complaining, complaining about the fact that people are so fragile that they become an impediment to one's own freedom or full ability to self-express and live in the world as an equal member of society. <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty big frustration. And so with This Week in Blackness, they're a group of people of color having a discussion about the election, and their their coverage all throughout the election campaign was focused pretty much like a laser beam on Black Lives Matter, anti-police violence, and essentially fighting for our own lives, trying to stop Black people from being killed in the streets is how they more or less phrased it. And so at any given time, when talking about the election or how people should vote, they they were essentially expressing a combination of feelings of frustration and anger and fear and all of these things that come along with being a Black person in America, listening to stories every day about people being killed by the police and watching the most racist presidential campaign in living memory, playing out before their eyes and thinking, well, I sure hope white people don't elect that guy because that could be really bad for us. And so it was more or less in that context that any comment about how white people uh, should vote would have been made. So, So that was the context. And I will admit that when I heard Ken's voicemail for the first time and he described how deeply offended he was by that, I thought, holy shit, now that is some fragility right there, completely missing the point of why people would say what they were saying. He framed it entirely in terms of, don't they know they need me? Shouldn't they cater to my needs and my feelings because I could go somewhere else and vote for someone else? And that is exactly the kind of fragility that This Week in Blackness and a whole lot of other people talk about all the time. That is the kind of white fragility of, hey, if you're going to say something that is slightly offensive to me, then I'll just take my vote and go home and vote third party or throw it away with Bernie, who's not even running it, like anything like that. 
And I'm not, I'm not attacking Ken because in his message, as you just heard, he sounds like he comes around. You know, he, he went through a phase of irrationality and sounded like he came through that, but was still frustrated by the whole situation. So what I wanted to do right now is explain the flip side of that, but also recognize that Ken's not making a bad point. We can complain as long and as loudly and as righteously as we want about fragility and people's fragile nature being an impediment to freedom for oppressed communities. But here's the thing about people. People are fragile. You can argue that they shouldn't be. You can argue that they need to buck up and you're not wrong. But in a world in which we have to play the game the way the board is already laid out, what are you going to do with the fact that people are fragile? My recommendation, as is so often the case, is to do both. People need to be told to buck the fuck up. If you are white or straight or male, especially, or all three, you need to be told every once in a while to buck the fuck up and recognize the world is set up in such a way that your life is easier. It is easier to live life in this world, in your body, than it is to live it in many other people's bodies. You should recognize that and understand where that sort of anger and frustration comes from and not be surprised when a group of people of color say, you need to vote against Trump or fuck you because you are taking their lives in your hands when you cast your ballot. Straight white guys are going to be the absolute last group of people to be adversely affected by Trump policies. And for that, you need to be told to buck the fuck up. But at the same time, if you want to convince someone of something, you need to recognize where they are. That that goes in all kinds of different directions. I, I always recommend, if you want to convince someone of something, you got to learn everything about their position so you can know where they are so that you can lead them from that point to where you want to get them to go. But part of that, that we haven't really discussed that much, is that part of where they are is in an incredibly fragile mental state because they're a human and humans are fragile. So all I'm saying is that it is not bad advice to take that fact into consideration when addressing people and trying to make your argument. Let me know your thoughts on that. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So come to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained